Amen. Y'all can go ahead and take your seats, and as you take your seats, pull out your Bibles. We're going to turn to the prophet of Micah as we continue our study through our series, Majoring in the Minors. We are in the book of the prophet Micah, and we have quite an amount of scripture to cover today. We are doing chapters 3, 4, and 5 as those cover Micah's second message. And so while y'all are turning in your Bibles, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we turn to your word and we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us, Father God. Lord, we know that you spoke through the prophets long ago, but Lord, we're studying and we're going through it. We, we know that your word never changes, never um, it is voided or any of that. Your word stands forever and you continue to speak through your word. And so, we just ask that you would simply do that, Father God. Speak your word to us this morning. Help us to hear your voice. May your spirit guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Micah, chapter 3, 4, and 5, is his second message that he is speaking, and it's concerning future events, not just for them at that time, but future events for us at this time. It has everything to do with their current setup of leadership, which gives us great hope for our time as well, because we don't hope in our leaders that we have now. We hope in a future coming kingdom. You see, corrupt leadership over the people leads to governing and ruling and injustice. It was true back then, and we know it's true today. Our corrupt leaders in leadership as they lead, leads to injustice. We see it every day. We deal with it. We watch as people are oppressed and as people are, are um, the, at the receiving end of injustice. We cry out at the injustice around us. But it, it almost seems like a, uh, not a useless cry, but it's an unanswered cry right now. Because our culture and our way of life, it's permeated through and through with injustice. It's at the city level, the state level, it's at the federal level, it's, it's in the legislature, it's in the Congress, it's in the judicial system. There is injustice. The hardest part about watching that is, is thinking and having that idea that evil is seeming to prevail or that justice is hidden or worse yet, is justice impotent. What's worse than all of that is that injustice has permeated even the sanctuary. Our current situation in climate injustice and evil, as I said, it's not unique to us. It's not unique to our time. The culture of, and, and, and sins of our time was prevalent in Micah's day as well. The same sins, the same cultural thinking from back then is alive today. Micah's hope was to point forward, not to the next leadership, but to point forward to the coming leadership the coming kingdom of the Lord. Evil and injustice prevalent then and prevalent today. And the question remains, what is God going to do about it? And I hope it's painfully obvious to us today. The answer is not found in who we vote for. It's not found in another person coming up into leadership. It's not another form of human government. It's not going from capitalism to socialism or vice versa. It's not found in any of the isms. Who is like our God who promises to take us from unjust rulers and ruling to ruling in justice himself? So we're going to go through Micah 3, 4, and 5, and I believe that the Lord wants us to see exactly how he's going to do that because that is our future hope. That is where we put our hope in. That is what we're looking forward to. 
starting Micah chapter three. We're going to go through all the chapters and then we're going to go back through it slowly at a time. Okay. So Micah chapter three, then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot and like meat in a cauldron. Then they'll cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He'll hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they've committed. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets and the daylight will turn black over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. As for me, however, I am filled with the power by the Holy Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the temple mountain will be a high thicket. Chapter 4, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They'll beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the people walk in the name of their own gods, we will, not, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze so you can crush many people. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord, their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. Now, daughter Zion, now, daughter, who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem Ephratah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to rule over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord, his God, they will live securely for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace 
When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise it against, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. He will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like the dew from the Lord, like the showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there's no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be destroyed. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. What some powerful promises from the Lord of something future coming. Number one, this is what he promises is coming. The end of injustice. He says, the end of injustice is coming. That's chapter three. He starts off, he says, the leaders will be judged. And so it has been true for all of time that those who are in leadership will face a stricter judgment. He says in the first four verses, he said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in the cauldron. Then they'll cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. So Micah starts off his message and it's well well received by the people that he's speaking to. He says, listen, leaders of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. He says, you're supposed to know what is just. They're in leadership. People put them there and trust in them because they expect justice. We expect justice from our leaders. Nobody wants to be ruled by a tyrant. There was, there was a poll that was taken and 100% of people agree they don't want to be ruled by a tyrant. Not even tyrants want to be ruled by a tyrant. But he says, instead of acting and ruling justly, he says, you pervert justice. How do they pervert justice? Because they hate good and they love evil. He's saying, you have no love of the Lord and neither do you fear him. Because the Bible teaches You who love the Lord hate evil because he protects the lives of his faithful one. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. Proverbs 8.13 says to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. You cannot love the Lord and love evil. You can't do it. Instead of practicing justice, they acted in opposite and perverse standards. Instead of leading the people, they instead are compared to wild beasts. This is what leaders are that do not love justice, that do not love the Lord, that do not fear the Lord. They are a wild beast. They are cannibals to the people that they lead because they rob from them, they steal from them, they treat them unjustly. He describes it. He says, you're tearing the skin, stripping the flesh. You're eating the flesh of God's people, preparing them like meat in a cooking pot. You want to chew them up and spit them out. And it's because of this injustice and perverse treatment that when that time comes, when Assyria comes and they cry out and they call out to the Lord, there's no help coming for them. He's going to hide his face from them and Israel will go into captivity. Israel will be scattered amongst the heathens. The leaders thought their prosperity would continue. They thought that the Lord was pleased because they're blessed. But when captivity comes, they're going to see, they're going to finally see, and they're going to know that it's God punishing them. 
You see, there comes a time in rebellion when the consequences must be endured for choices and actions. God is long suffering. He's not forever suffering. God certainly will listen to the prayers of his people, but this does not mean that he will relieve them immediately from consequences for their sinful actions and choices. Unfortunately, there's many people that I know that when they make bad decisions and the light finally comes upon them and they, and they see where they need to be and they, and they reach out and they call out to God for salvation. Yes, God saves them, but they still have consequences that are going to come. If you live a sexually promiscuous life, you may have consequences that face that, even if you give your life to Christ. If you rip people off in the business world, there may be consequences. If you break the law, even though you give your life to Christ, there will be consequences to pay. The leaders are going to be judged. The false prophets will also be judged. In verse 5, it says, This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. It says, Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets and the daylight will turn black over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Holy Spirit, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. The Lord does not ignore the false prophets either. And he identifies the false prophets. You know how to, false, how to know if it's a false prophet? Because they lead you away from God. They don't lead you to God. These prophets are supposed to proclaim the word to the people to bring them back to the Lord and back into his covenant, but they were acting contrary to their place and position and their supreme calling. They proclaimed peace because they were being bribed. But the one who provided them with nothing, however, would bring, they, would, they would receive no peace from them. They weren't concerned for the purity of God's people. They weren't concerned for the truth of God's word. These prophets were only concerned with themselves. We need to beware of the prophet whose goal and desire is not God's truth proclaimed, but their own wants and needs met. Because materialism is their master, not God. We need to be discerning to understand and to recognize that so that we are not led astray. Because of their contrary way, because of their contrary word, God declared it will be night for them, meaning it would be dark. They would have no enlightenment. They would be, have no vision. There would be no divination. He says the sun is going to set on these prophets. Their time is coming to an end. The seers are going to be ashamed. The diviners disappointed. They're going to cover their mouth because everything that they proclaim and everything that they said is not what's going to happen. And they will have no answer for the people. But I love how, how Micah ends this. And I, and I think the Lord said, you know what, Micah? You need, to, you need to tell them what a true prophet does. And so he says, I'm filled with the power by the Holy Spirit of the Lord with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and Israel his sin. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of um, justice and, and being aligned with God to proclaim to someone that they need to understand that what they're doing is wrong in the eyes of God. That's not a message people want to hear. That's not a message that's easily received by people. You see, a message that people want to hear, oh, that's easy to proclaim. But to proclaim the message they need to hear, that takes the power of the Holy Spirit. That takes justice and courage. The true prophet is willing to endure because their desire is to see people change their ways and turn back to God. So because of the leaders, because the political leaders, because of the governing leaders, 
are corrupt, because the false prophets are corrupt, God says Zion will be destroyed. In verse 9, he says, listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that's right. You build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for silver. But they lean on the Lord saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Verse 12, therefore, Because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins and the temple mountain will be a high thicket. He says, listen to this leaders and rulers, because you abhor justice, because you pervert what is right, you're building Zion through bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Because you rule for bribe, you teach for payment and you prophesy for silver. Yet you're leaning on the Lord and presuming that I'm with you. And being with them, he's among all the people. And in this presumption, they're presuming that they're not in danger. And so the Lord says, therefore, and just like every other ruler, because they prosper, They think God is okay with it. Never take your prosperity as an indicator that God is pleased with you. That God is okay with what you're choosing. His word says specifically, do not deny deny justice or show partiality to anyone. Don't accept a bribe because it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. God says, because you violate my statutes because you violate my character. It says Zion will be plowed like a field. And when you plow a field, if you've never plowed a field before, I've never plowed a field before. I've just, I've seen videos. I, I, I know what they do. You're, you're tearing up the land. You're breaking up the ground. You are, whatever was there before will be gone when you're done plowing. And that's what he's saying is, I'm uprooting Zion, Jerusalem is going to become ruins, and the Temple Mountain will be a high thicket. He says, I'm clearing the land. The slate will be cleaned. Effectively, God is saying, I am wiping out injustice. But then Micah goes into the next part of his message to tell them, but Zion will be restored. You might think that that means that God had given up on you guys. But the next part of his message is to remind them that God will not give up on them, that God's word has not become void, that God's word has not changed, that he will fulfill all his promises. And the first thing he tells them is, I'm wiping out the injustice and here's what's going to happen. When Zion's restored, the Lord will rule. It says in the last days, The mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many people and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They'll beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him for the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own God, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. On that day, This is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you, watchtower, for the flock, 
fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. What an amazing promise. After, after just hearing, you're going to be wiped out. The slate's going to be wiped clean. But not because God is done with you. But because God is bringing perfect rule. And he, says, he starts it off, he says, in, in, in the last days. He says, in the last days, speaking about the time coming in the future. He's, th- this is directly referring to the end times. Because this day hasn't come yet, right? The Lord has not come and set up his rule. I, I mean, I read that description and I'm like, it's not here yet. We long for that day. They longed for that day. It's the end times. It's the day of the Lord, also known as the second coming of Christ. These first eight verses of Micah's prophecy are specifically speaking to the future promised millennial reign of Messiah of Christ. And it is one of the most detailed prophecies of that time. And what that rule and that kingdom will be like. It says in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house. We know this from the other prophecies that we study, but mountains always represent kingdoms. And so the mountain of the Lord's house, the kingdom of the Lord's house will rule and be established. And it says at the top of the mountains, he's saying my kingdom will be established above every other kingdom. It'll be raised above the hills. It will be supreme. It will be sovereign and it will be known by all who are alive at that time. And then he describes what that kingdom will be like. He says, people will stream to it. All the nations, all the ethnos, all the peoples will come desiring to go to the house of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob. You see, God's plans and promises are not nullified because of sin. They're established because of his word. What a beautiful thing to understand that sin does not cancel God's word. In Genesis 12, 3, when God promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He was looking forward to the kingdom that he would establish that he was going to begin through the people that he was going to bring out of Abraham's seed. And then continue it down, furthering and furthering into the line and the lineage of the Messiah. The temple site will become the center for that millennial kingdom. That's the place that Christ will sit on the throne and rule from. Which is a stark and striking contrast to the desolate condition of Jerusalem when it's plowed. There will be no Uh, I forgot what the name of the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount. That will be wiped away and it will be reestablished with the Temple Mount for the throne of Christ. The religious and political systems will be closely related. There will be no such thing as separation of church and state. Moses' day saw Israel's government completely intertwined with their religious system. The king anointed by God to govern and the priest anointed to lead in worship will be one and united together. The king will be the high priest. Our king is our high priest. And it says and in his kingdom, he will teach us his ways that he would, that we would walk in his paths. Zion will be established as a place of instruction And it will go out. The word of God will go out from Jerusalem. He's going to settle disputes among nations. No longer will nations have to come together. And we don't need a united nations to try to bring us together and try to put their uh, strong thumb anyone into doing what they want them to. We, We won't have that geopolitical landscape that we have today. He will settle disputes among people. He will provide the arbitration for for strong nations far away. And I can't think of a wiser, more all-knowing person to handle those disputes. 
It says that they will turn to peace. They will no longer take up arms. They won't even need those arms. They're going to beat those into plows and pruning knives. And it says they will no longer train for war. What a wonderful day when we don't have to have a military budget and we don't have to see our loved ones go off and be trained and deployed and far away. There there will be no reason to train for war. Peace will reign when justice comes perfectly. And with those two things, fear will be unknown. He continues on. He says, also on that day, that same day, that day of the Lord, which isn't a 24-hour period. It's just that time period. On the day of the Lord, that day when the Messiah comes, when the king comes to rule and reign, the people will be gathered together. He's not coming to rule an empty kingdom. That's the promise to the, to the Israelites. Your king will not come and have an empty kingdom, but he will regather all the people, the ones that he scattered, the ones that he sent out, the ones that he put into exile. He will regather them together and they will be a people. He says, I will gather the lame and the scattered. He says, I will gather those I have injured. Why? So that they will be a remnant. He says, I will take those that I've injured and they will become a strong nation. But here's the focus of this. It's not that Israel is going to be once again a prominent nation because of their own right. The focus of this is that the Lord himself will rule over them. From that day forever. Sovereignty will come to Jerusalem in the millennial reign. And the Lord will rescue the Lord will rescue them. He says, now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you, they say. Let her be defiled. Let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan, that he's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze so that you will crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord and their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. Now we're returning again to the future hope. The future hope, and now he turns them back to the things that have to happen first. You have to have the present trouble. The judgment is coming. It's going to involve distress like a woman in labor, which the Bible makes that comparison, which means there is no greater distress And he says, you will be delivered to Babylon. But don't despair too much because you will be redeemed from there. And this one has both a near fulfillment and a further fulfillment. It has a partial fulfillment with a later complete and total fulfillment. Because they will be brought back out of Babylon, right? From this prophecy right here, Daniel puts forth what they're going to later read while they're in captivity and go, you know what? We're supposed to be freed after 70 years. And then they're going to understand that the same prophecies that Daniel studies and leaves for later on when they come to know, to expect their Messiah. That's how the wise men know to go looking for Jesus. When even the Jews don't know to be looking for him. Then he goes back again to the more forward again. He says, many nations have come up against them. Speaking specifically of Assyria, but not Assyria as a specific nation, but more so Assyria as a culmination of the nations. There is coming a time in that day when Christ comes back, when all the nations have gathered together to come against the Lord's people that have gathered together at Petra 
and await the Lord's return. And when the Lord returns, the armies of the world gather together for that one final kind of trying to stand against the Lord, but it says that he defeats them just with the words of his mouth. But here's the, the point that Micah's letting them know. These things have to happen first. Don't focus on these things happening first. Focus on what's coming. The fact that they're taking place should give you hope because what the Lord promises is coming will come. And that the Lord is not done with them. He will raise them in prominence under the rule and reign of their Messiah, the coming King. Which brings us to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the promise of the Lord that justice will reign. And it starts with the coming king. Micah 5.1 says, Now daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They're striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem Ephratah. You are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. He says, understand this, a ruler will come. Specifically, that king for that kingdom will come. And it's prophesied with specific prophecies. The ruler comes from Bethlehem, but there's three major well-known Bethlehems. So it says, not any Bethlehem, it's going to be Bethlehem Ephrathah. Specifically the Bethlehem of David. Specifically the Bethlehem that is six miles south of Jerusalem. And the coming king is also going to be of the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly tribe, the lineage of David specifically. And then it says that the coming king will be eternal. That's what it means. It says his origin is from antiquity and ancient times. You see, there was not a time when this king did not exist. Essentially, what is being said here by the prophet is that this king will be deity. This king will be God. Verse 1 is contrasted with verse 2. It, the current situation is discouraging, but don't worry. All will be changed with the coming Messiah. Israel will be abandoned until that time when she who is in labor is given birth. And we know that in the book of Revelation, as we studied it, that there is a prophecy about when the woman gives birth, that the, that the beast was waiting there to devour the baby. And this is talking about bringing the remnant of Israel back. This is speaking also of the prophecy of the nation of Israel giving birth to its Messiah. Micah again anticipates a future time partially fulfilled in the Babylonian exile and return, but finally will be fulfilled at the great tribulation and the restoration of Israel. Three stages of history are described here. Number one is the rejection of their Messiah and their abandonment until that time. We know that when they crucified Christ, that the Lord abandoned Israel, not completely and totally to, to leave them destroyed utterly and forever. But they no longer carried that promise of bringing that message of salvation that is now reserved for this time period that we find ourselves in known as the church age or the present condition as the age of grace. The time of travail 
is the second time, the time of travail that awaits the nation. That's the tribulation. That's that labor pains, that out of those labor pains, it comes the remnant. And after those pangs, Israel gives birth, the believing remnant out of the believing nation to receive Christ as Messiah. And Paul says in Romans 11, at that time, Israel will receive her Messiah. The remnant will be gathered. The remnant will be ruled by Christ to fulfill the promise that God gave to Israel that I will give you a king who will rule you perfectly. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord in the name of the Lord, his God. They're going to live securely. He will be their peace. He's not just a ruler from Bethlehem bringing peace, but notice what it says. He is their peace. Ephesians 2.14, Paul wrote, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. That's what our king does. He makes us all one. Christ's shepherd care for Israel and his worldwide dominion are set forth in verse 4. It talks about the future Assyrian army striking Jerusalem. The Messiah will raise up enough capable leaders to drive them back. Uh, It's poetic form to say seven shepherds and even eight among them. It's just saying that there will be an adequate amount. It's not a specific number. It's just when you see one number followed by the larger number, it's an adequate amount. With the coming king, the point is, we have hope for deliverance from injustice. The king will be the administrator of justice, of true justice. And what he will set up is a purified kingdom. In verse seven, it says, then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there's no one to rescue them. He says, your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be destroyed. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. And again, this is another one that has a a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment uh, or a more complete fulfillment, if you will. You see, when he comes and plows the land and brings them into captivity, that is the last time that Israel is ever recorded as having any type of idolatry. When they come back out of Babylon and they set up their temple, they, they no longer go back to Baal worship. Now they may have an empty worship of God, but they never go back to other gods. Even to this day, they're, they're either atheistic Orthodox Jews, which is kind of a conundrum to understand, or they're messianic in, in that they see Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, but they never go back to the false gods. Then it has a future fulfillment because in that kingdom, there will be no idolatry. It won't be tolerated. It won't be allowed. We will have someone who stands in leadership that will know and put an end to it before it is able to establish. He says, everything that he's cutting them off, he says, trust me because I'm taking and ripping of their hands everything else that you could possibly depend on. You will look to me for all of it. You won't be able to trust in military might. I'm cutting off your horses and chariots. The cities will be cut off in verse 11. They can't trust in the defenses of living in the city. 
Sorcery is cut off in verse 12. The idols are cut off in verse 13 and 14. They can't trust in any activity that they can do of themselves. They have to trust in the coming king. God will not only look after Israel's purity in the millennial earth, but the, and, and with the nations, the nations will also have to walk in purity before him. That will be that kingdom. The kingdom will require that they walk in purity. And he will ensure that justice reigns in the final kingdom because it's his kingdom. Micah's message is simple. Injustice will be judged by God. And then God will restore justice through his king, his Messiah, and through the future coming kingdom. And in that future coming kingdom, justice will reign. Peace and purity will be throughout the land in those coming days. Injustice will be judged and it will be dealt with and it will be gone forever. The encouragement is that we endure injustice for a time because of the promise of the coming justice. I believe that the Lord is allowing us to see to the full end of it all that every single thing that man thinks that he can set up to make this world perfect will utterly fail so that when he comes and sets it up, we know there is no other way. It's God's way. It has to be. The hope for the future makes the present situation bearable. Our encouragement is this, in this time of injustice, in this time of an imperfect kingdom, and while we wait for our perfect king, we have to persevere lest we fall away. Hebrews 4.1, therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. We must make every effort to strive and to enter through that narrow gate. Or as Hebrews 4.11 puts it, let us then make every effort to enter that rest, which is kind of funny that there's an effort to enter into that rest. But the effort is that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience. I don't know about you all, but I love going through the minor prophets. I love going through the prophecies because future promises are encouraging. Future promises are strengthening because our hope comes from the promise of God for the days that lie ahead. It is a wonderful thing to know that our best days are not behind us. Our best days are in front of us still yet, and we wait for them. And that's what Peter said. Second Peter chapter 3, based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. And you know what? For those of us sitting here today, we have an advantage over the Israelites of Micah's day. Because we've seen much of this prophecy from Micah fulfilled already. With the first coming of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter said, we also have the prophetic word made more sure because we've already seen part of it fulfilled. Made more sure in its fulfillment. Made more sure so it comforts us. It strengthens our hope regarding the future promises of God. If God kept his promises concerning the first coming of Christ, our confidence should be all the more strengthened that he will keep his promise concerning his return, which we wait for, we look for, we hope for, we pray for. Every time we say, Maranatha, even so, Lord, come. We have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you would do well to pay attention to it because it is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Who is like our God to remove injustice and replace with perfect justice in his promised king, promised coming kingdom that will last forever, but it is reserved only for those who receive the peace of the Messiah 
of the Christ, of Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're going to sing one more song. And during that song, it's a time of reflection. And I would ask that you would open your heart to the Lord and say, evaluate where I'm at. Maybe we're sick of the injustice that we see, but are we hoping for what's coming in the future? Are we just without hope? Do we look at it with hopelessness or with eager anticipation for what's to come? When people come to us and share that they're wearied and worn out from what they see in this life, do we tell them that there is a hope, that there is a coming time where that will be fixed, where that will be all changed, where it will all be put right? And do we share with them that one of the greatest injustices that has ever occurred has been the fact that Christ died on the cross for us? That he willingly gave his perfect life for us that we would be forgiven of our sins so that we could enjoy that coming time of perfect justice. If you're here and you've given your life to Christ, I, I invite you to open up your heart and allow God to speak to you that hope, that, that anticipation for his coming. If you've never had your sins forgiven of you, I ask that you would open your heart to the Lord to be made ready for that time when justice is coming because you want to be on the side of justice. You don't want to be found being dealt with in justice. And then I also invite you to stand together, united as one in Christ Jesus, so that we can praise and we anticipate and we gloriously, hopefully, await the coming of our King. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your um, prophetic word of truth, Father God. It may not be fulfilled yet, but it's as good as fulfilled because you spoke it, Father. And we trust you. We look forward to you. Christ, we can't wait for you to come. We want you to rule now in our lives now, but we can't wait for you to rule supreme here in the future either. So we ask, Lord, come quickly. Even so, Lord, come. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.